We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. And Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center. Freedom Center is a support activism and advocacy community run by and for people who are diagnosed with severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar, depression, uh, OCD, uh, borderline personality. You can check out more information about Freedom Center on our website, which is freedom-center.org. We are also co-produced by the Icarus Project, is international community of people who are living with psychiatric labels but don't identify with medical definition of our experience. Uh, check out theicarusproject.net. My guest today is schizophrenia survivor and recovery advocate Ed Knight. Ed is known internationally for his work and leadership in transforming the mental health system. I'll just read his uh, bio here, um, brief bio on Edward Knight, PhD. Dr. Ed Knight is Vice President for Recovery, Rehabilitation, and Mutual Support for Value Options. Value Options is the second largest behavioral managed care company in the U.S. He also serves as an adjunct professor of rehabilitation sciences at Boston University. Dr. Knight worked as a private consultant working through a consulting group called the Empowerment Partners from 97 to 2001. His customers were managed behavioral health organizations, states and counties, as well as mental health provider and consumer organizations. He was the CEO of the Mental Health Empowerment Project, Inc., for 12 years. When that project began in 1988, there were about 12 self-help groups in New York State for mental health recipients. Now, in large part because of the project, there are over 600 self-help groups in New York State. Uh, The project also helped start or gave technical assistance assistance to about 35 self-help not-for-profits efficiently delivering effective mental health services, including drop-in centers, peer counseling, housing, case management, and mutual support. Dr. Knight is also involved in research. He has worked with several research centers, UCLA, Boston University, Nathan Klein Institute in upstate New York, and National Research and Development Institutes in New York City. His areas of research interest are mutual support, recovery, rehabilitation, and co-occurring substance abuse and mental illness. Dr. Knight has received numerous awards, including the Clifford Beers Award from NMHA in 92, the Timothy Timothy J. Coakley Leadership Award from American College of Mental Health Administration in 2004, and most recently the USPRA Chairperson's Award in 2005. Dr. Knight is a consumer of mental health services. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1969 and has been homeless. He's also a family member with members of his family of origin having had mental illness. Ed, thanks so much for joining us um, today on the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, you're going to be out here, I guess, on Thursday for a couple of events. Yeah. One is going to be a dialogue on, on empowerment with providers and consumer survivors at 1 to 2.30 at the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership, which is in, Mass- in Holyoke. And then the other is at 3.30 at the Quaker Space, 43 Center Street in Northampton. People who are interested in that can get more information on our website, which is freedom Center. Dot org. Yes, um, and there'll be an event in the morning for at the uh, at the uh, partnership for uh, providers. Oh, great! Okay, um, and uh, just Ed, tell us a little bit about how did you get involved with this? I mean, I know you're an internationally recognized speaker on recovery, but what's sort of the background and history of your own story? I know you've been in the mental health system yourself. Well, I was I was uh, locked up uh, and uh, went through. Uh, a recovery experience. It was it was uh, a combination of a uh, uh, I don't know combination. <laughs> That's a bad term already. It was a spiritual experience, uh, and it was uh, uh, um, a spark, and it was grace, uh, as described by Pat Deegan in her uh, in her uh, uh, article, "Recovery: The Lived Experience of uh, Rehabilitation." Um, except it was you know unique to me it wasn't uh, pat deegan's experience it was my experience uh and i uh i was uh suicidal i was looking for a way out of my pain 
the pain was so intense. I didn't really want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop because it was too intense to bear. And uh, I was uh, walking down the hall, and uh, um, I stopped, and I prayed probably the first authentic prayer that I prayed, and it was not to an image or to a concept. Um, I simply prayed help, uh, and um, the pain. Uh, I I I decided to uh, see if the prayer would be answered. Um, so there was an element of trust that there would be an answer, and I went back and laid on my bunk and fell asleep and slept through the night. And I woke up the next morning, and the pain had gone down enough that uh, I I could. Uh, I could function. I know I could do things. I, I and I, I uh, the pain hadn't totally gone away though. And uh, shortly thereafter, I uh, I was on a, a back ward, what they call a back ward, and uh, I uh, looked around, and we were all considered totally hopeless people. Uh, and there were no the word recovery wasn't around. There were no. There was no possibility of such a thing. This was uh, 1982. There was it was it was pre-recovery days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I, I wanted to make an, uh, another another point about about the recovery story, though, because um, we were all considered hopeless, and I decided at that point that that wasn't fair, and that uh, I was going to create hope. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't going to be just for me, um, and so uh, hope came as a decision. Um, it wasn't uh, something to be discovered out in Dumdar Hills. You know what I mean? It was a decision to to live my life on behalf of of my brothers and sisters, uh, and uh, it was uh, not uh, not. Uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, mysterious thing uh, that I was in quest of. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, is missing nowadays in the, in the whole uh, quest for hope is that it's a decision. So that's how I got into this kind of work. And uh, then I, uh, I, I didn't immediately start I, I, uh, in the hospital, I started doing self-help work and um, began just, I, I didn't really get a job doing this kind of stuff until 88. So it was 82 to 86 years later. But for for six years, I, I just uh, helped my, I helped whoever I could, doing whatever I could. Um, you know, I, I remember I was involved in several law cases, um, and uh, just voluntarily, and uh, um, started a number of self-help groups. And we uh, we finally uh, we finally uh, began uh, getting funding, some funding streams in the, in the area of self-help. And I I saw a job and I applied for it. I was homeless at the time. My wife and I were homeless, and I I was living in New York and. I applied for a job in Albany, and I, I got it, and I began organizing. And I, I, uh, I was uh, successful organizer. I had been trained as an organizer on the west side of Chicago, and uh, by the Institute of Cultural Affairs, and uh, so I used my organizing talents uh, that I had learned in poverty situations, with uh, mental health situations, which are also poverty situations. Uh, that's that's often overlooked, I think. Um, and uh, the uh, same kinds of uh, of uh, same kinds of uh, strategies that are used in in uh, organizing um, work, and we applied those in New York State, and we went from about ten self help groups in '88 to when I left New York in '96, uh, there were over 600 mutual support groups. And we had started at that point maybe um, 50 or 60 consumer-survivor-run consumer agencies. 
and we had successfully uh, had a lobbying effort, uh, which uh, brought $280 million from uh, the, close, the downsizing of mental hospitals into uh, the community, and 5% of that, because, because we were at the table as part of the lobbying effort, um, 5% of that off the top went to consumer survivor organizations. The experience leading up to my hospitalizations were uh, were ones of uh, complete disorientation. Um, I was uh, I, I I was uh, a college professor and uh, had a series of crises. Um, I was disoriented in the classroom um, in front of my students. Uh, Doing odd things, bizarre things. I was—I uh, lost my position as the college professor. I uh, um, finished my dissertation shortly after that, and then shortly after that, ended up homeless and lost everything that I had. Uh, I was uh, homeless and uh, uh, destitute for. A period of time, um, I was uh, in and out of, of uh, jails, uh, committing petty survival crimes for a period of time. Um, I was disoriented, not knowing who I was, um, experiencing states of inner terror, uh, which other people um, had no idea uh, were going on. They they didn't understand what they were. I couldn't relate to other people what they were. I had no idea what they were. Um, um, there were extremely bizarre uh, states of being that I was in that uh, that uh, are very hard to articulate in words. And the, the experiences of loss were intense. And then I was uh, finally picked up and Put in a hospital, and uh, and when I was in the hospital, um, the uh, I saw uh, brutality that I hadn't imagined um, would go on. I uh, saw a friend of mine uh, taken down by AIDS, uh, uh, and he was kicked in the head uh, simply for talking loud and. Uh, he was uh, then deaf in, in one ear from that. Um, I saw another friend of mine who was uh, beaten until he was uh, uh, he was a brilliant chess player, and, and after that he couldn't play chess because he had brain damage. Um, I saw uh, people selling sexual favors for for a pack of cigarettes uh, to. Uh, uh, people they didn't want to sell sexual favors to. Uh, I uh, I just saw things that that uh, were not were not very healing in, in a place that was supposed to be healing. And this was in a public facility in Colorado. No, this was in a public facility, but I'd rather not say where. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Wow, and then that so that was several years that you were in uh, locked up and in in that system. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, it it was um, you know uh, I've talked to my brothers and sisters since then, and for example, in the state of New York, when I was there, um, um, we had a study done by Commission on Quality of Care, and uh, we found out that uh, that something like uh, 60 or 70 percent of the population that uh, were asked uh, from state hospitals reported uh, abuse, and about 10 percent of them reported sexual abuse. Uh, we we uh, had a report uh, um, um, that was done by uh, the uh, department, the, the quality, the internal quality department at the uh, Office of Mental Health in the state of New York that issued a a uh, a final report in which it it's, it it stated that there was a culture of violence among the 
staff in the state hospitals at the state, in the state of New York. Um, and uh, there is a uh, there is a series of lawsuits currently uh, against the state of New York, which would uh, confirm that those kinds of things still go on. Um, uh, so I don't think that. Uh, I mean, every year you read about uh, reports in which people die during the seclusion and restraint process in in institutions across America. There is a there is a pro, uh, a uh, a uh, and I, I don't want to. I mentioned the state of New York because it's publicly documented, but um, there are places. I, I, I'm not going to name names and. In places, um, but uh, there's a practice called tubing, uh, which was um, <coughs> mentioned in a famous film called, uh, shown in a famous film called Titicat Follies, and uh, that uh, that film is uh, is uh, horrendous in its in its detail of brutality. But tubing is holding somebody down who won't take their medication, shoving a tube down their throat and dropping a pill down their throat. People die in that process, and tubing is still going on in at least one institution that I know of in America. Um, and uh, practices like that need to be stopped. Um, um, I know I was asked by a consumer survivor. A consumer, consumers call themselves consumers because they hold up the ideal of choice as a as an ideal and wish to be wish to choose their services, although um, feel uh, a lot of times subject to force. And survivors call themselves survivors because they feel like they have uh, survived through a very uh, traumatic system. Uh, and then uh, in a in a uh, um, a lot of people call themselves consumer survivors and combine those terms. Um, and um, a consumer survivor who works at the institution where tubing goes on uh, um, is working very diligently to try to stop that practice. Uh, it just uh, It's just horrendous, some of the things that go on. So all of that combined was the pain I was in. It was my pain from the losses. It was my pain from from uh, from uh, the internal chaos I was in, and I got to say this also, which is often ignored in mental illness. Some of the pain I was in was due to my own behavior. Um, it was uh, due to uh, not the bizarre behavior, but due to uh, some of the some of the ways in which I had. I had treated people, um, and I think that is often overlooked. Uh, in in mental health, there is uh, 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 talk of triggers, uh, and uh, you know I'm my own worst trigger. I do twelve step work, and I think uh, that uh, there's a famous line: um, "In a thousand ways, we act from fear, self delusion, self seeking." self-pity, we, we step on people's toes and they retaliate. Um, well, we often forget everything except they retaliate. <laughs> we forget how we step on people's toes. Well, I, I think I'm my own worst trigger, so I'm willing to admit that I step on people's toes, that I act out of fear a lot, and that I act as self-delusion and self-seeking and self-pity. So uh, I, uh, I do want to own my own stuff and not blame the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's one of the um, one of the sides of of activism for human rights is that the focus on changing the system and changing the system. And just like you say, the the states that we get into themselves are extremely difficult and extremely problematic, and they can be the things that lead us to be alienated from the people around us, or get us into yeah. trouble with the police, yeah. or get us lead us to homelessness. And all of this, you know, eventually you ended up with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Is that right? Yeah. And it was really that moment when you decided to take a spiritual approach to um what was happening to you that that things really started to to turn around. And what why is it that you think you were able to make that 
step after all that you had been through? And what is it that really made a difference for you? Was there something that happened or was it something that you were holding on to or? You mean that taking a spiritual step? Yeah. To that moment that you described of, of just praying in a really authentic way and then deciding to want to turn around and offer that hope to other people. Well, there was, there was, uh, it was, it was a moment of being at, I, I mean, I was fractured. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was in a million pieces. And, uh, what, ha- what happened was <coughs> I, uh, in that moment of, of, of asking for help, I was, I don't know how to put this exactly, but I was at one with the million pieces, <laughs> you know, and, and then a couple of days later when I, when I made the decision to uh, help my brothers and sisters who were also fractured uh, and, and in a lot of pain, I was at one with them. Um, I, uh, I, uh, it was it was uh it was just just the uh spirituality is is uh not separate from where where we are um, and uh when i when i when i prayed and when i when i decided to help my brothers and sisters i also made the decision to live right where I where I was, I made the decision to live in that institution, and not really seek to get out. Uh, it was to be to live fully where I was, to live fully in the institution, um, in spite of the in spite of the brutality around me. And it wasn't really. I, I decided to uh, to. Um, I mean, this may seem strange and very paradoxical, because. I could see uh, the brutality around me. Um, it it was not to really resist or or hate or or it was to um, um, it was to do something about it by by uh, seeing that that the little man who works on the ward the worker was also somebody who was oppressed. Um, and that the psychologist in charge of the ward um, was was frightened, um, um, and that uh, that that you know he he had to come to work in a place that he thought was horrible, and uh, that uh, that uh, the the kitchen staff um, didn't know what to do because they really had crappy food to prepare, and that uh, that. Uh, that the guy who was paying taxes and um, wasn't really paying enough taxes to support the institution at a level it needed to be supported at was strapped because he had kids at home and his kids maybe didn't have proper, proper dental care. And so um, he was trying to keep his taxes down, that, that, that the, whole, the whole thing was broken. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I was... Uh, I was uh, I was like uh, there in the middle of all that brokenness, trying to uh, trying to um, uh, do something about it, um, trying to trying to say, folks, we can we can we can heal. Um, we don't need to be a burden on the state. We don't need to be hopeless and helpless. Um, we can learn skills. We can set goals. Um, and at that time, nobody was saying that. Um, nobody at all was saying that. Uh, that I that I could. I mean, later on, I found out people were saying that in different places, but there was there was no public voice saying that. Later on, I learned, you know, um, that Judy Chamberlain was was saying that, and that uh, that uh, Joe Rogers was saying that, and. Uh, and Jay Mahler was saying that, and George Ebert was saying that, and David Oakes was saying that. Later on, I learned there were activists all over the country, but at that time, I didn't know all that. Uh, um, and so, uh, um, the uh, you know, it was like 
there were people all over the country um, discovering that uh, hope was possible and making decisions that hope was possible and and acting and trying to do something about their situations and the situations of of everybody around them and trying to uh, trying to uh, uh, function with compassion um, in the in the uh, in the broken situations they were in and, and that produced a movement and and what we have in in this country is a strong movement at this point of consumers and survivors who have joined together and and we call ourselves consumer survivors at this point and you you mentioned that um, you had had some training as a community organizer. How did you put those skills to um, to use, and, and how did you organize these uh, support groups and get groups going um, around New York and around the the country? Well, there are really uh, uh, strategies for doing that. The, uh, the 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 basic strategy is to. Um, demonstrate in yourself and then in a particular geographical location that this can be done. So I think uh, changing yourself, uh, change begins with yourself, I think, and then changing uh, uh, a particular place, uh, uh, having a project uh, in which... uh, you 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 help uh, your brothers and sisters engage in change, and that means creating hope, uh, creating changing uh, another another strategy is changing stories. So that that uh, people there's a term that that uh, I like being restoried, uh, gaining a new story, going from a story of hopelessness to a story of hope. That a whole group of people make a decision to to hope and then begin to live out of that decision um, and live with the brokenness of their situation and be at one with the brokenness of their situation. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a Zen kind of, of, of principle that, uh, that when you're at one with brokenness, there's wholeness or in the, in the, uh, in the great death, there's the great rebirth. Uh, and so, um, when there's a, when there's a, a happening like that in one geographical location, that intensive strategy can be spread, and then you have an, in, an extensive strategy. You begin to spread the word. And so um, in New York, um, we, uh, we uh, began with uh, the uh, 10 self-help groups we had, and uh, we used that as the basis for an extensive strategy, and we began to spread the word. And we, we went out and, and said, um, what can we do about our situation? There, there's 10, 10 groups that are doing something. So we had, uh, we had uh, uh, what we called town meetings for empowerment, and we asked uh, the questions, um, what can we do? What what are the basic problems we face before, during, and after hospitalization, and what can we do about them ourselves? And we ended up with a common agenda across the state of New York. And from that, um, people began creating projects in all over the state. And then we had the, the Reinvestment Act, uh, and the Reinvestment Act poured uh, millions of dollars into the community and and actually millions of dollars into con- consumer survivor-operated projects. And we ended up in New York with, uh, with uh, um, a lot of change stories. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, Inside Outside, Pat Deegan's uh, uh, DVD on uh, moving from institutions into the community tells a lot of stories. Those stories are all from New York. Uh, and... Uh, they're really some beautiful stories, but uh, the uh, the Reinvestment Act um, and the funding uh, allowed uh, a lot of consumer survivor organizations to emerge, which are doing case management, homeless outreach, um, um, 
three different projects are doing supported housing um there's a, a lot of uh of uh recovery centers um there are uh, there's uh, one place that does a, f- uh, a f- uh like a food pantry um there are uh, a lot of support groups uh there are skills teaching projects uh, there are there are just a lot of consumer consumer survivor operated services all over all over the state of new york um, and uh the uh other strategy uh, besides uh, intensive extensive uh, uh, strategies and uh, change story are uh, uh, research and development uh, you research what you've done you 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 keep account of what you've done in terms of research, and then you develop new ideas. You constantly need to be developing new ideas uh, um, in order to uh, grow and expand. On on that note, what's the um, role of medication in this whole issue? Because one of the things that we uh, have focused a lot on at the Freedom Center, we've had a number of guests on this show, Robert Whitaker and Peter Stotsny was on, uh, last week are really trying to bring forth um, the voices and the studies of the scientists and the professionals who are saying that the the drugs that the pharmaceutical companies are really pushing really don't work the way that they say that they do, that there actually can be a big obstacle for a lot of people in recovery and that there isn't a lot of accurate information and that actually people can recover not only can people recover without medication, but actually if you if you start out with responding to a psychotic crisis or a breakdown or whatever it is, without with non-medication approaches, if you don't use medication to begin with, the outcomes are a lot better. So what what in your view is the is the role of challenging kind of the, the centrality of pills and medication and the pharmaceutical companies in this whole movement that you're describing? Well I I tried that approach, Will, and it didn't work for me. Um, so uh, Peter Fred, Peter Stasny is an old friend of mine. Um, I worked with Peter for a number of years. Um, I have great respect for Peter. And I do know a number of people who have successfully um, gotten off medication. Um, but uh, for me, that hasn't worked. Um, you mean in your own personal life? Yes, in my personal but life. But I mean, in, like in general, as a movement... Um, approach because one of the things that we do at the Freedom Center is there are many people who take medication who are at the Freedom Center, many people who don't. The idea is that you know you present people with a choice and you give people options. But in terms of reforming the move the uh, system as a whole so that there are non medication options and non medication ways to deal with people's people's crisis. Well, I, I think that medication is a complex question. Um, I I myself rely as much on meditation, M-E-D-I-T-A-T-I-O-N, <laughs> meditation. Yeah. I rely as much on meditation as I do on medication. And um, uh, I take medication for a number of different conditions other than psychiatric conditions, and they interact, and they, they don't always interact in helpful ways. So I'm somebody who tries to reduce the number of medications I'm on for all of the conditions I have. Um, and, um, uh, for example, I have COPD, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I smoked until 1993 and then I quit. And, uh, then I developed COPD 10 years later. Um, um, and, uh, which was, you know, I'm my own worst trigger. I, I, uh, screwed up my lungs, but, uh, I actually, work with uh, a really good uh, respiratory uh, doctor uh, in Denver at uh, National Jewish Medical Center, uh, which is an outstanding facility. And uh, I was able to increase my lung capacity through yoga and meditation. Uh, And uh, so I'm not as reliant on medications for COPD as I otherwise would be. Um, And he documented that. but, uh, I mean, I, I have several mental health diagnoses. I was dependent on medications for anxiety. I no longer am. Um, and it was interesting because as I became, as I became medication-free for anxiety medications, 
I developed uh, hypomania. And the way my psychiatrist uh, and I uh, decided to understand that was that uh, um, I was interpreting my body responses differently. Um, Oh, interesting. So you had to kind of relearn how to interpret your body responses now that you were off the anxiety medication. Yeah, and I became, like, very irritable and, like, speedy. You know, I I became Mr. Speedo. (laughs) I was speeding around. And um, because, you know, if you think about it, anxiety and hypomania are both adrenaline responses. And so... um, so you were on the benzodiazepines or something for this? Yeah, for anxiety, I was on benzodiazepines, which slow you down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, after I became, I mean, I don't really experience anxiety anymore, and I used to have debilitating panic attacks, and I used to have also social phobias, and I don't really have either one anymore. You don't experience anxiety anymore, like like you just don't experience anxiety. <laughs> Not much. I wow. mean, a little. A little bit, but not. I don't have panic attacks. No, I don't. I used to have terrible ones, mm-hmm. and I worked with that through through uh, um, a lot of internal work, and a lot of meditation, and uh, and a lot of, uh, of therapy uh, internal. And I, I I do a lot of my own analysis, and then I kind of tell my therapist what I've done, um, and he works with me. And I also have a therapist who does psychotherapy with somebody with schizophrenia, which is. Um, very rare, uh, because uh, um, usually therapy for somebody with schizophrenia means hand-holding. It's, it's called supportive therapy. They usually won't do uh, in-depth psychotherapy. Uh, yeah, there was, a, there was actually a big story in the New York Times Magazine recently about working with people who hear voices and the importance of psychological therapy kinds of approaches. And it yeah, definitely yeah, is well, helpful yeah, to a lot yeah. of people, yeah. Yeah, actually that's something that... that that uh, Peter does, and I'm sure is involved in a, in decreasing the role of medications. Well, um, my uh, my therapist works in depth with me uh, psychotherapeutically. So um, um, then I became uh, then I I in order to not drive the people around me crazy, um, and with my irritability and my hypomania, I decided to use uh, uh, mood stabilizers. <coughs> well, uh, my wife noticed that mood stabilizers were causing uh, uh, memory problems, and so I began working with... Uh, uh, I noticed a, a strong connection between hypomania. I observe uh, being having studied a lot of meditation and Zen and insight, especially insight meditation, which is Southeast Asian, I uh, and now then I I watch the conditions under which uh, thoughts and feelings arise and the conditions under which thoughts and feelings uh, fall away, and I noticed the conditions under which hypomania would arise, and uh, then I would notice the conditions under which they fall away. So I gave up television <laughs> ah. because uh, television is a very angry media. When I got off. Uh, uh, television, I was able um, also to uh, uh, get off mood stabilizers and use them uh, PRN. Uh, in, so I work with my uh, psychiatrist in, in these kinds of ways. Um, and uh, um, I, uh, he's also a meditator. Um, and uh, so I'm able to work with him on, on these kinds of issues and uh, uh, in, in, in spiritual ways and with uh, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah, and I find that also that the internet can definitely be a trigger. If, I, if I've been surfing for a while or doing my email for a while, I, I can get very dissociated and that can lead to a lot, of, a lot of problems. It can be a real trigger. Actually, if I sit at work working on my computer, I can dissociate. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even surfing the net, just just sitting there on the computer screen. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just recently, this is a tip for anybody who's listening. I, I figured out how to turn my computer into black and white so there's no colors on my computer. Oh, really? It, it really helps. I how find do you it, do that? Because that might help me. It's actually in, if you go to the, it's often in the universal access uh-huh. um, settings, like for helping people who have visual impairments, use oh. the computer, then you can choose grayscale 
instead of um, and then change the contrast. So I've been wow. telling people, hey, try a black and white computer, see what happens. I'm going to try that because that it, may help me. It's worth try. It's all about you know experimenting and seeing what works for you. Um, you mentioned before um, we were talking earlier about just the whole question of suicide, and I think that this is a really it's an important question because it's often at the core of why these states are scary because we think, okay, the person is, is going off the deep end. They're going to die. They're going to be in a manic state and think that they can fly their car into a tree, which my friend Oryx thought that he could do, or they're going to get so depressed that they're going to jump off a building or, or cut themselves. And then on the other side of it is that the system uses the fear of suicide as, a, as an opportunity and an explanation for why force is important. Okay, you're going to commit suicide. You're suicidal. Therefore, we have to put you in restraints. We have to lock you up. We have to put you in the hospital for your own good. So I'm just wondering, what are the kind of things that you've learned about that from your own experience and also from the efforts that you're making to, to transform the mental health system? Um, well, um, I think one of the problems is that uh, with um, the uh, with suicide is is helplessness, obviously, um, and uh, that uh, we need we need um, we need conditions in, in and we need places where where hopefulness springs forth um, and. Um, Right now, um, mental health systems uh, only in spots are places where hope hope springs forth. Uh, we have uh, some data from New York that uh, that uh, the strategies that people use for coping with uh, suicidal uh, thoughts uh, are not the mental health system. The mental health system ranks number ten. In, uh, in what people use for coping with suicidal thoughts, uh, talking and companionship, talking with uh, uh, families, friends, and, and uh, peers uh, ranks number one. Um, and it's always it's always been very difficult for me to understand why, for example, people's cell phones are taken away from them when they go into the hospitals. Why it's so hard to make phone calls. Why the visiting hours are are limited. There's often shared public phones. People don't have any privacy. It seems like going into the hospital often cuts you off from the support networks that you need to help you deal as a coping mechanism for suicidal thoughts and feelings. Well, in many places, if you call in as a voluntary patient to uh, to 911 or to a hotline and say that you're suicidal voluntarily, um, you'll hear a knock at the door, sirens, You'll be locked in handcuffs, thrown in the back of a police car, and taken to a uh, a, a, a lockup. Um, none of which is hopeful. None of which is is what you need when you're suicidal. Yeah, uh, none none of which is going to happen if you come to a Freedom Center support group. <laughs> to yeah. people come all the time and talk about suicide, and we don't we don't ever do anything like that. Well, in some focus groups we've done, also we found out uh, on the, on the issue of why why don't people talk with uh, with uh, mental health professionals about suicide we have we have found out that uh, that uh, on the to talk about the professional side for a minute that uh, that consumer survivors are relieved to be able to use the word suicide and professionals have so much consequentiality connected with their positions so much liability connected with with uh, their positions, that they become afraid to use the term suicide with consumer survivors um, because they're afraid to trigger suicide. Um, and when we talk with consumer survivors in focus groups, they say, gee, we're not, it's nice to use the term suicide. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... Um, to, be I, to be able to be open about it. I mean, one thing that we... And one thing that I've, I have learned is that it's often, if someone does start talking about suicide and their suicidal feelings, that it's really important to listen to them, but also to realize that you don't necessarily have to focus on that. It doesn't have to be the sole topic of the conversation. There may be lots of other things that they want to talk about as well, because I think that if you do focus on it exclusively, then the fear of the listener starts to become an ingredient of like, why are, why are you so interested in my suicidal issues kind of yeah. Yeah. So, the um, 
the uh, reason that we found out in the focus groups that people don't talk about uh, suicide with professionals, the main reason is the consequentiality uh, issue uh, viewed from the point of view of, of consumer survivors. Um, they uh, they will end up locked up or they will have their medication taken away uh, and and uh, have it doled out by professionals or or uh, there will be some other consequence um, they'll be they'll be viewed differently from then on um, they'll, they'll, there's consequences to talking about suicide and uh, and they people fear those consequences I think that the issue of force has become uh, uh, so identified with the mental health system that people don't want to use the mental health system. There are several studies which show that. Of course, there's a wellness study done in California a number of years ago by Gene Campbell. Uh, there's another study done in, in uh, Europe uh, which shows people uh, don't use services where there's outpatient commitment. Um, and uh, then there's the uh, there's the uh, uh, studies we've we've been doing on on suicide and why people don't talk about suicide or use use professional services much when they have suicidal thoughts. I think um, it's also it's also true of homeless shelters and uh, domestic violence services that people are afraid of using those services and then you know having being forced into the system when they talk about what's going on with them whether well, it's suicide yeah. or cutting or or depression or whatever experience that they're having it's like force drives people away from getting help well yeah i know from my experience in the streets and uh i was just in los angeles working with the los angeles men's project which is a home it, it's a homeless project in downtown los angeles um the uh, the uh um uh, Number of people who raised their hands when I was I was I was training professionals uh, who who are a lot, about thirty percent of them were ex street people but I was training professionals who uh, who deal, deal uh, on a daily basis with the, with the situations uh, created by the homelessness uh, in Los Angeles uh, and um, they were saying uh, when I asked that a, a lot of people. Are there because they're 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 running away from from systems that they don't want to be forced into, um, and uh, I think that question is um, not studied on purpose. Uh, I think uh, NIMH avoids studying a lot of questions. Um, I think uh, NIMH actually is dominated by what I'd call the monkey brain syndrome uh, that we all kind of function like monkey brains and uh they can't uh, get out of that uh, that uh syndrome uh they can't get uh, back to uh to uh reality um uh, uh the reality of 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 when things arise and when things fall away <coughs> of uh of accurate observation outside of of their limited paradigm of of uh of the uh, genome and the brain um and uh, how long have we been looking at the genome um, and uh, have yet to make discoveries related to mental illness? Uh, it's been quite a while. Um, right. Even, even there's not even a definition of what consciousness is. They haven't <laughs> discovered where consciousness is in the brain. Well, it's interesting that you're bringing it back to um, spirituality. We haven't got a lot more time, and this has been really, really fascinating. And I just wanted to, you know, bring up again the spirituality question, and if you had more thoughts about that, especially like what is the possible role that spirituality can play in the mental health system when you know not everybody has the same religious orientation, or some people aren't interested in spirituality at all, or they haven't really learned much about it. What what sort of role do you think it has to play? Um, to me, spirituality uh, is. Um, its most simple definition is non-separation. Um, uh, that uh, if if you take a, a simple analogy, that uh, human beings are one body, um, and uh, that uh, if uh, if my left hand, say my left hand's called Joe and my right hand's called uh, Jim. Uh, if my left hand 
uh, is cut and starts to bleed, Jim, uh, my right hand, just immediately goes over and helps Joe, my left hand. Um, on the other hand, um, if I if I feel separate, uh, then Jim, my right hand, looks over at Joe and says, oh, I'm not going to help you, then the whole body dies. Um, and I think when we have that realization, uh, that's what spirituality is. Uh, I like that. Um, Ed Knight, do you have any, any closing um Closing thoughts or ideas as we as we wind down the interview here. Um, yeah, I, I I think there's there's hope everywhere all the time, and I think that there's basically um, um, a way of of working with every situation, and there's resources uh, to be found in every situation, even when we when we don't think we have any. Um, and the the supreme feast, which is life at every moment, um, is 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 to be found, no matter how little we 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 think we have. Awesome! Thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Ed Knight. Ed is a leader in the movement to transform the mental health system from a recovery perspective. Ed works with Value Options Behavioral Care. You can contact him through their website, valueoptions.com. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. 